Welcome to Four Questions Four, a podcast by Osgood Hall Law School presenting great conversations about legal education, the profession, and the law. Today, Benjamin Berger, Osgood Professor and York Research Chair in Pluralism and Public Law, will have four questions for Osgood Professor Joan Gilmore on the topic of our medical assistance in dying laws. Professor Joan Gilmore teaches in the areas of health law, disability and the law, and torts and is the founding director of Osgood Professional Development's master's program specializing in health law. Her research and publications span a wide range of issues, including medical assistance in dying, treating children, professional regulation, patient safety, legal capacity, and the interrelation of disability, gender, inequality, and law. Both Joan and I served on the expert panel convened by the Council of Canadian Academies, an independent body that the federal government had commissioned to study certain issues that remained outstanding when the law was changed to allow medical assistance in dying. The Council's reports were submitted to the government in 2018. And so, Joan, without further ado, let me welcome you and ask question one. For the benefit of listeners who may not be familiar with medical-assisted dying, when did it become legal? What does the law actually say? Thank you, Ben, and I'm really glad to have a chance to speak on this really important topic. Medical assistance in dying became legal in Canada pursuant to federal legislation, changes to the criminal code, in June of 2016. And there were provisions put in place to regulate and legalize the provision of medical assistance in dying, or MAID. And it had also been legalized in Quebec in December of 2015, pursuant to different legislation in that province. So the federal legislation applies across the country. The Quebec legislation is uh, specific to to Quebec. And it was a response. This wasn't something that government decided to do on its own. It was a response to a decision of the Supreme Court of Canada in a case called Carter. In Carter, a woman suffering from a serious neurodegenerative disease had asked the court to strike down our existing legal prohibition on physician-assisted suicide. The court at that time in Carter did that, and it did that subject to certain conditions. And it then suspended the effect of its judgment for a period of time to allow the federal government to respond. And the law that we're talking about today, these amendments to the criminal code, is the federal government's response. And Joan, that was a reversal of the Supreme Court's earlier holdings on medical assistance in dying, wasn't it, from the Rodriguez case? That's right. So up until that time, and uh, the Supreme Court of Canada had made this clear in a decision called Rodriguez, which was 1993, that it was supporting the criminal prohibition on physician assistance in dying or anyone's assistance in dying. One thing I want to say, though, about our law with respect to medical assistance in dying is that unless you meet the conditions that are set out in the law, otherwise this remains a criminal offense. Right. So this is federal legislation that really is removing or creating a space within the law of homicide to allow for medical assistance in dying in certain strict conditions. That's right. And I should go on then to say what those conditions are. Uh, You have to have a serious and incurable illness, disease, or disability. 
you must be in an advanced state of irreversible decline in capability, the illness, disease, or disability, or that state of decline has to be causing the person enduring physical or psychological suffering that is intolerable to them and that can't be relieved under conditions that that person would find acceptable. And also, their natural death has to have become reasonably foreseeable, taking into account all their medical circumstances, but you don't necessarily have to have some prognosis as to the length of time that that person has remaining. So those are the conditions. There are a couple of other ones. You have to be 18 or older, and the decision has to be voluntary, and you also have to be assessed by two different practitioners. Doctors or nurse practitioners can do this to make sure that the person actually meets all of these eligibility criterion. So given those strictures, how common actually has medical assistance in dying been in Canada since the legislation was changed? Well, it was put in place in 2016, midway through, and the latest statistics available are up to October of 2018, and these are Government of Canada statistics, and up to that point in time, more than 6,700 people had access to MAID. Back in September, uh, there was an important ruling, the Truchon case, in which Justice Christine Baudouin of the Quebec Superior Court invalidated, held unconstitutional, the reasonably foreseeable death component of the federal law that you just described. And a similar section of the Quebec legislation that says that people must be at the, quote, end of life to access assisted death. Justice Baudouin said that the restrictions were unconstitutional because they infringed the charter rights of the two claimants in the case, uh, Section 7 and Section 15, our equality guarantee as well. And the two claimants in the case were a 73-year-old with post-polio syndrome and a 51-year-old with cerebral palsy. Doctors in that case had concluded that neither of these claimants met the conditions allowing medical assistance in dying to be provided, despite living with what they described, with what the claimants described, as persistent, unbearable suffering. They argued before the court that the law was discriminatory, that it was fundamentally unjust, and contrary, therefore, to their rights under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And so we come to question two. Do you agree with Justice Baudouin's ruling? I do. And I think that that requirement that one's natural death has to have become reasonably foreseeable was always seen as raising a lot of questions. And it was also not a requirement that was found in that Supreme Court of Canada decision, Carter, that I had mentioned earlier. Carter did not, when it set out conditions for who could access medical assistance in dying, did not reference any kind of temporal limit on who would be able to request it. And the amendments to the criminal code did. And when Madam Justice Baudouin ruled in favor of Jean Truchot and Nicole Gladieu, she did so first on the basis that there was a breach of our equality rights under Section 15 of the Charter, and that this provision discriminated really on the basis of their physical disability. And she also found that there was a breach of our Charter rights under Section 7, or their Charter rights under Section 7, which would protect the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, and a right not to be deprived of that 
except in accordance with principles of fundamental justice, which is a lot of words. But it's a ruling that really points out and recognizes that people can be in these situations of intolerable suffering and be nowhere near a reasonably foreseeable death. And so, as you say, the ruling did strike that provision down. And interestingly, this ruling just came out last September, September 2019. The Quebec government decided not to appeal it. And the federal government, well, we just went through a federal election campaign. And during the campaign, Justin Trudeau said that his government would expand MAID if it was reelected, but did not give any specifics of what he was thinking about in that regard. And he did note that it would be important to balance protecting both the rights and interests of people who would be uh, vulnerable and at the same time protecting Canadians' ability to exercise their rights and make choices with respect to MATE. And so I understand that in Quebec it is studying the matter and uh, it could revise its law. It could simply delete this requirement that one be near the end of life in order to access MAID, but that it has a broader expert panel review underway looking at uh, Quebec law too. And there's other litigation happening in Canada that's taking up these questions as well, right? Because uh, Justice uh, Baudouin's ruling really only applies within the province of Quebec. Um, There are cases elsewhere in the country that are taking up really quite similar issues, lamb in British Columbia, that sort of uh, litigation? Yes, there are cases. So this this requirement was very quickly subject to challenges under the Charter of Rights and Freedom. Interestingly, the lamb case that you referred to in British Columbia, and that was a claim that was being put forward by a 25-year-old woman who had spinal muscular atrophy. She later withdrew her claim because doctors had concluded that she actually would meet that requirement that her natural death was reasonably foreseeable, and so that claim got withdrawn. But there have been other cases that look at this requirement that natural death is reasonably foreseeable. One in Ontario gives some indication that the requirement is not going to be or should not be too rigidly or too narrowly construed. And so what the court said in that case, and that's a case called AB in Canada, it said that the language reveals that natural death need not be imminent and that what is a reasonably foreseeable death is a person-specific medical question that is to be made without necessarily making, but not necessarily precluding, a prognosis of the person's remaining lifespan. And I think that these cases, even though they may be specific to the province that they're decided in, they're still interpreting what is federal legislation, so they have certainly persuasive value in other jurisdictions as well. Um, You've mentioned the balancing and the contentiousness of these issues, and that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has said, well, we'll have to be cognizant of the balancing. Could you say a little more about what's being balanced, about what is kind of structuring the contentiousness around this? Because even if it's relatively clear in Carter um, and relatively clear in the decision in Truchon and in other places, of course, it remains highly contentious as a social matter. So I wondered if you could say a little bit more about just what kind of shapes that contentiousness, what's being balanced. It absolutely does remain very contentious, and there are many people who are adamantly opposed to legalized medical assistance in dying. There is a real concern, I think, on religious fronts, but there's also a very serious concern that is put forward uh, by some people with disabilities, not all, that there is a vulnerability 
already existing then that, that made will simply allow further marginalization of people who are already um, uh, stigmatized, who are already often disregarded, and that it will both as an external matter and even be internalized uh, as something that really is the only option. There is a concern that resources would end up being devoted to made and its provision rather than to supporting people who are living in whatever difficult circumstances they might find themselves. And those are serious concerns, and they do have to be taken into account. Do we have evidence about whether those concerns are valid in other jurisdictions that have been dealing with the legalization of medical assistance in dying? This was a central inquiry in the expert panel's work, trying to understand what really was the experience. Because it is fairly rare in the world, our data is also somewhat narrow. But what do we know about these questions of vulnerability and about usage and those sorts of things? Well, you're right that the the data that we have available on what happens elsewhere is narrow because it's not been legalized in that many jurisdictions. In the United States, there are several states that have legalized physician-assisted dying and that have produced annual reports for a number of years now that do address questions like, is this simply going to affect people who are already the most marginalized in society? And the indications from those reports are that uh, that has not been the result. So it has not been the case that people are being pushed into this. Your reference to the broader social context, I think, is, is, is really important and brings us to a recognition, really, that discussions about medical assistance in dying often naturally give rise to other sorts of issues and debates in the healthcare space, questions about unequal access to quality palliative care, um, who gets to make decisions about when life support for a decisionally incapable patient should be stopped, uh, these other kinds of broad questions in, in health law. And so this brings us to question three. Since 1990, when you started teaching health law at Osgood, what progress has been made on the palliative care front in, in particular? Palliative care is a very important and a really valuable service, and it has been the subject of study and reports for years by Senate committees, uh, by other groups, and it is pretty clear that the realities of access to this really important service have been found to come up short. The service is so important, and we're not providing it as widely as we should, We certainly need more resources and services that are devoted to palliative care, that are available to more people, and that are accessible more widely across the country. But we also have to remember that even if access to palliative care were perfect, there would still be people who would want medical assistance in dying. So I do not think that it's an either-or situation. And I also don't think that palliative care is the answer for everyone. And so it may be, if you think about the Truchot and Gladue case, for instance, given their circumstances and the length of life that that they expected, palliative care may not have been or may not be a solution for the circumstances that they find themselves in. And the final point I want to make is that 
palliative care can't always achieve sufficient relief for people who are gravely ill. For instance, from pain, from the terrible shortness of breath that they may be experiencing, and from other acute symptoms. What about this broader question of access to health care? So access to palliative care is an obviously pertinent question. But given your experience in the field and your expertise in health law generally, um, could you say a word or two about unequal access to health care more generally, the kind of broader frame of that? We do have problems with access to health care and inequalities in that. We have a publicly funded health care system, and it is a single-payer system, and it has many, many strengths. And at the same time, it is far from perfect. And so we actually have ongoing right at the moment in Canada an important uh, judicial proceeding out in British Columbia dealing with whether or not we can still maintain this requirement that we essentially have a single-payer system or do people have to be allowed to access care privately. That case is called CAMBI, Surgical Clinic. I think I might have the name a little bit wrong. And uh, we don't have a decision on that in the rest of Canada. We did have a decision earlier in a case called Shaouli from Quebec. And so we're going to have to see what the court says about that. It doesn't seem to me that your only options are that you have a publicly funded system or you then have the Wild West in terms of opening everything up for private care. It seems to me that there is a lot that can be done within our publicly funded system, which uh, provides care for people on the basis of need as opposed to ability to pay to make that system better. Because as I say, there are problems and they are significant problems within our system. And fair to say one of those significant problems within our system too is Indigenous people's access to health care in particular. That is not something that our current system is dealing with nearly as well as, as we would hope, certainly. That is certainly true, yes. Yes. Now, in this, in this basket of broader questions that get engaged, broader social questions, uh, complicated questions that get engaged around discussions of medical assistance in dying, drawing from an area of my own work, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the challenge of um, MAID and faith-based institutions. The provision of MAID and the place of doctors or institutions who might object on faith-based reasons to providing the service has also become a contentious issue, and I wondered your thoughts a little bit about that. Well, let me distinguish here between the individual practitioner, doctor or nurse practitioner, and the institutions. There is no individual practitioner who has to provide MATE. That is very clear in the law. There is, in Ontario, where we are now, uh, a requirement that if someone is not going to provide that service and the person uh, is requesting it, then there has to be what's called an effective referral. And that was litigated, and that was a provision that was upheld by our Ontario Court of Appeal. Moving to the question of institutions, that's another and interesting question because we have a system in this country where we have faith-based institutions who are, for instance, running hospitals. Mm-hmm. Um, and those hospitals are public hospitals. Doesn't mean they're publicly owned, but they're public hospitals and they receive a great deal of public support in the sense of financial transfers from government so that those hospitals can operate. So that then raises questions about whether or not there should be limits on 
the services that those hospitals can decide to provide or not. And those questions come up not just with respect to MAID, they come up with respect to things like access to abortion, which runs against uh, the tenets of uh, some religions. And in the MAID context, this question has arisen because there are a number of faith-based institutions that will not provide MAID and that do not want that to any of any of what's associated with provision of aid, like assessing whether one meets the eligibility requirements to take place in those institutions. And at the same time, there are faith-based institutions that are also trying very hard, recognizing that the patients who are going to be eligible for MAID are, by definition, suffering intolerably. They are in really difficult circumstances, and they do not want to make life more difficult for those patients. So those institutions are trying to facilitate things like transfers to other institutions so that MAID could be provided. Um, We haven't worked this out, and we haven't, at least in a court of law, addressed this fundamental question. If an institution is receiving those public dollars, does it get to pick and choose the services it provides, not on the basis of expertise, for instance, oh, this institution simply doesn't do obstetrics, but on the basis of the underlying religious principles, and we haven't addressed that yet. And so, last but not least, we come to question four. Do you envision, Joan, the day when the current law about medical assistance in dying is broadened to include, for example, mature minors who can already make other decisions about their own health care, or people with conditions like Alzheimer's or dementia who may want to make an advanced request for medical assistance in dying, a request before they actually become decisionally incapable of making those health care decisions. So I'll start with mature minors. And I should just uh, explain what I mean by that term, mature minors, because, you know, we can say about one's teenager, well, he or she is very mature for her age, but it means something different from that in the healthcare context. It really refers to somebody who is what is called decisionally capable. And that kind of capacity requires the, the ability to both understand what is being proposed and also to appreciate the consequences of what, what's being requested made and also of alternatives to that, if there are alternatives to that. And so it's only minors who have decisional capacity that I'm speaking about today. There are certainly few jurisdictions, as we noted earlier, that allow MAID, and there are even fewer jurisdictions that would allow minors to access it, really only the Netherlands and Belgium. And both those countries include additional safeguards that are meant to balance protecting people who are vulnerable, but also to recognize that their decisions may be similar to adults who are experiencing intolerable suffering. Because remember, when we're talking about MAID, we're talking about people who are suffering intolerably. That's one of the requirements. Um, And we also, I think, have to bear in mind that at present, right now in Canada, the law does allow decisionally capable mature minors to refuse treatment, even if that treatment is necessary to preserve or to sustain life. So you can refuse treatment. The question here is, should the law be expanded to allow one to request mate? Um, And so we think then, if you're going to deny this right to mature minors, 
does that breach their charter rights? Just as we saw in Trucho and Gladue with adults, does it breach their rights under uh, Section 7, life, liberty, and security of the person? Does it breach equality rights? Is this discrimination on the basis of age? Would it even breach Section 12, potentially, uh, subjecting them to cruel and unusual treatment? We don't have a case on this as yet. It's certainly true that minors can meet all of the other eligibility criteria for MAID, and especially they can be experiencing intolerable suffering. And the question for me comes to how then do we justify excluding them in light of that? And so I think this bright line age cutoff in the MAID legislation is highly vulnerable to constitutional challenge. You mentioned safeguards can comfort a little bit around some of those concerns. Can you say a bit more about the kind of safeguards that would be appropriate to that kind of a setting? Um, Some safeguards that could be considered might include things like parental involvement, parental agreement with the minor's decision and so on. And I think one that would be certainly very consonant with our jurisprudence here in other contexts is the decision-making about whether the minor has decisional capacity. So that's that's a little bit on mature minors. W- w- what about advance requests? Or for that matter, the other uh, issue that was before the the panel, which was instances in which mental disorder is the sole underlying condition? Um, I think one useful way of coming at this uh, is to think about the different time frames that might be at issue. So currently, our criminal code requires that there be a 10-day waiting period between an initial request for MAID and an assessment of eligibility and then actually administering MAID. And there has to be, at the end of that 10-day period, confirmation from the person again that they want to go ahead with MAID. And there has certainly been fear expressed by some patients that they're going to lose the capacity in that 10-day period because, remember, they are in circumstances of intolerable suffering. And there is evidence that people have sometimes been refusing, for instance, pain medications needed to respond to this intolerable suffering simply to preserve the capacity that they would need to then affirm their request for MAID. And that's a real concern. It, I think, raises some different questions than advance requests that might have been prepared long, long in the past before any conditions existed to trigger implementation. So we have to ask, does it matter if an advance request is made before or after the person develops a condition that threatens their future capacity, like dementia, or that's likely going to lead to circumstances that would justify a request for made? So I think there are a lot of questions that need to be unpacked there before we can come to that. And then turning to mental disorder. So should MAID ever be allowed when mental disorder is the sole underlying condition? It's possible, but it's rare, for someone who suffers solely from a mental disorder to meet all of the existing eligibility criteria for MAID right now. But It's rare because, in a particular, the requirement that natural death be reasonably foreseeable is seldom going to be met, okay? And so it's not going to happen very often. And with mental disorder, there are concerns that there may be less stability in the diagnosis, poor predictability of what the person's prognosis is or about the effectiveness of treatment compared to predictions one can make about treating physical conditions. And that's not always the case, though. Uh, So there can be instances where you've got a higher degree of certainty. You know how this disease is going to unfold, 
uh, for instance, Huntington's, where the underlying pathology is better understood. And so it's hard to develop a blanket answer to this. Joan, I want to thank you more generally for this conversation. And I'll say also, even more broadly, for your leadership and knowledge that you've brought to the public debate about these issues, about medical assistance in dying and healthcare more generally in Canada. So thank you for this, Joan. Well, and thank you, Ben. You've been listening to Four Questions Four by Osgood Hall Law School. We hope you'll join us again next time. 